Okay. Well, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 8, and we are going to be looking at five verses today, starting at verse 23, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. I know, I'm pumped too. I'm excited about this as well. So, on March 18th, 1990, March 18th, 1990, um, two police officers came to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and this was in Boston, Massachusetts. And so on this day, these police officers came in, they were led in by a security guard and an alarm had been tripped or something like that, or they were coming to, to check in on an alarm. Security guard didn't know what that was about. And that's because there was no alarm and they weren't police officers. So they came in, overpowered the guards, duct taped them to uh, chairs in the basement, just like you'd see in the movies, right? And then the thieves helped themselves to some of the greatest art treasures in this museum. They spend an hour and 20 minutes, and in this 110-year-old museum, they ended up taking works from different artists. And of the 13 pieces that they stole from this museum, the total cost, half a billion, with a B, half a billion dollars worth of artwork. And um, of all that artwork that's been stolen, it has not been recovered to this day. One of the greatest art thefts in history. In fact, there's a picture of an empty frame um, that you'll see because this was kind of a permanent exhibit there. This is what it looks like. Now, it's very interesting because the thieves took certain paintings and not others. And they left some very valuable ones there, too. And it didn't seem like they were in a rush. It seemed like they knew which ones they were going for and which ones that they would take. So now if you go to the museum, you will see uh, 13 empty frames there kind of as a reminder that there was art there and that a hope that maybe it will be returned. And if you go there now, because of technology, they are able to use some virtual reality tech and you can bring an app loaded up on your tablet and walk through. And so on the walls where the blank paintings are, it will superimpose the artwork on your screen. So you can see what it would have looked like. And so, you know, Technology can be used in lots of different ways, and I think that's a pretty awesome one to, uh, to be able to see something that was stolen. And the interesting thing with that painting right there, the one that was in that spot, it was one uh, by a man named Rembrandt. He painted lots of things. He was really ahead of his time. It was painted in 1633, and it's called uh, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the only painting of Rembrandt where he painted a seascape. He's painted lots of things, a lot of portraits and lots of other things, but he never painted a seascape before except for this one painting. Now, you'll see it on the screen there. Now, you may recognize it, and it is like, wow, it looks a little dark on the screen. The painting actually is like that. It is darker around the edges, and it's lit in one section there, but it's a picture of the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, in a boat with Jesus there. And, you know, Rembrandt was a master when it came to drawing the eye and how things all work. And so, you, you know, your guy gets drawn to the, the brightest part of the image first and you see a group of disciples over there that are fighting against the waves and fighting against the wind. And then as you're looking, you go, wait, the tilt on the boat, you start to look down and to the right and you start to see that there's another group of people in the darker area of the picture. And I think we have another shot that's a little closer of this, of those in the darker area. 
And you see in the darker area here, I mean, there's Jesus there. And then you have other disciples. And it's very interesting because as Rembrandt is um, painting this, you know, it's his interpretation of the story in Scripture. He's got different people doing different things. I mean, there's a couple of things I love. Like this guy here, he's just retching his guts out right here. He's got his head over the edge, retching his guts out. I'm just like, there you go. That's classic painting right there. Love it. Like a guy puking. And then um, you can't quite see it's very, it's, he's, it's probably the dimmest one in this whole thing. But there's a, a person right above the guy that's, that's uh, losing his guts. Uh, right above him is a guy that's just got his head bowed down and his, his hands together praying to Jesus. You have a, a person there in, in the, the brightest one off to the edge there. Uh, he's pretty much, it's like he's, re, like every everyone has a story, right? And so for Rembrandt, as he's painting it, everyone has a story. Like that one, it's kind of like, what's his story? I don't know, it's kind of like, I'm, I've resigned myself. We're dead. We're dead. I'm not praying. I'm just going to sit here and stare at the bottom of the boat. I'm not even going to help. I'm not going to help do anything, and I'm not going to pray. And you have all these others, there's some, you know, you know, ones holding, holding the, the oar there. And then there's others that are, that are just there all around, like maybe pleading with Jesus. And Jesus was taking a nap. And so he's kind of just waking up <laughs> and all this stuff is happening around him. And if there's something that I love about this painting, secretly I was the one that stole it into my house. No, no, what I, what I love about this painting is, Man, Secret Service is going to be at my house this afternoon. Uh, is this that when you go to the let's go to the wide shot one more time, if we wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind. As we look, I mean, as this wide shot here, you're looking and there's, you know, a handful of disciples up there and a handful down here and all of that. And so you do the quick count, too, and you've got the 12 disciples and then you've got Jesus. And of course, there's the guessing of like which disciples who. Right. But that, that's that's neither here nor there. The idea is like, OK, great. Twelve disciples plus Jesus. Except that would be, let's see, 12 plus 1. It's 13, right? There's 14 people in this picture. So if we zoom in one more time, and I love this. Rembrandt was awesome. Talk about breaking the fourth wall. There's only one person in this whole thing that's looking at the person looking at the painting. You see him? He's holding the line there. He's got his hand on his head, and he's looking right at you and me. And Rembrandt has painted... Plenty of self-portraits, and that person looks a lot like Rembrandt. He painted himself in as the 14th person on the boat. I love this painting because I believe that what the scriptures do and what they call us to do is they call us to put ourselves in this story and go, where would I fit in in this story? And for Rembrandt, not only did he ask that question or did he pose that, he painted himself into one of his own paintings. I believe that the story that we're about to read this morning had a profound impact on him. And I believe the point is that we're supposed to put ourselves in the story as well and go, who would we be on this boat when the storm comes up? So the title of this message and the most important person in the boat is Jesus. So that's for certain. And he's the king. So the title of this morning's message is the king in the storm. Uh, Let's pray. And then we'll jump right into Matthew chapter eight, verse 23. Father is we're coming before you We just thank you so much that you are with us, that before we arrived here, you had already prepared a place. You had already made things possible for us to get here. Everything from our hearts beating, us breathing, everything required to transport ourselves or our family to get here to church, all of the things required for us to hear and understand a message, all of those things, God, you have taken care of. Thank you 
for taking care of so many things that we just may not even think about. And we thank you that as we look into your word this morning, you want to speak to us and you want us to examine our lives and to examine what boat we're in and who's in the boat with us. So, Father, we pray that you would have your way. Holy Spirit, speak through me in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter eight twenty three. Jesus has done some amazing miracles. He's had either a very long day or quite a few long consecutive days. Either way, there's been a lot of miraculous ministry that's been going on. People getting healed into the late hours of the night. Him making house calls, if you will, or going in that direction. I mean, he's just healing lepers, hearing, healing servants, um, uh, helping people that are demon possessed, that they would be, the demons would be cast out. I mean, Jesus is doing amazing things and his disciples have a front row seat at all the things that are happening. And if you remember last Sunday, Jesus had instructed, Hey, I'm ordering you. We're going to go to the other side, the other side of the lake. And two people came up to him last week. We read about it and they had different motivations of why they were going to definitely follow Jesus. One was with wrong motives and another one was like, yeah, I totally will follow you. But first I got to take care of a bunch of stuff. And we realize that both of those are the wrong approach to following Jesus. When Jesus says follow, we follow him wherever he leads us because he's leading. So Matthew 8, 23, and Jesus is going to do this. And when, verse 23, he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Awesome. It's great. Now, wait, Jim, you're saying hundreds of people got it? Well, no, no. Sometimes it's the idea of you have to understand context. Sometimes when it says he was speaking to his disciples, you have to go, wait, is this a large crowd? Because it might be a large group of his disciples. Or are we talking about what we traditionally would think about disciples of the 12? Well, in this one, uh, the 12 is, is the context of what we have here, have come into this boat with him. And so he got in first and I love it. He didn't say, hey, you guinea pigs, you go first. He as a shepherd says, I lead sheep, follow your shepherd. And they have a choice. I love it. Jesus leads. A leader goes first. And so Jesus goes first. And then it says his disciples followed him. The word also their disciples is very interesting. Think about this. You know, if somebody asks you, you know, well, well, what are you religiously? And you'd be like, well, I'm a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you'd go, I'm a Christian. The interesting thing is in the scriptures, that word Christian, Christianos, it only is in the Bible three times. That word, it's only in there three times. And in fact, the name Christian, it came about by people making fun of those who followed Jesus. Because Christianos, Christos would be Messiah, would be who we describe as Jesus. So uh, Christos is that. What's Christianos? Christianos means little Jesus. It, it was in a city of Antioch that a bunch of people, they were making fun of followers of Jesus. And they were going, oh, look at you. You're a little Christianos. You're a little Jesus. Look at you. And it was meant to be mocking. But you know what the Christians did? They just took it on as a name of pride. Yes, we are, we are following after Jesus. Thank you for giving us a name. And so the name we used, that when you say I'm a Christian, just know that originally started out as an insult. No, oh, you're a little Jesus. I'm proud, proudly, I think that's too big of a, a phrase for me. But if, if you, that's how you're recognizing me, that when you see me, you see Jesus, well, okay, let's use that as a name then. And so the name Christian, that, that, that term, I'm a Christian, only three times do we see it in the Bible. 
What's the phrase that's used most often to talk about the people that follow Jesus? Disciples. 268 times in the Bible, the word disciple is used. It doesn't mean just the 12. No, no, it doesn't mean just the 12. It means anyone that follows after Jesus. Now, disciple, what does it mean? It means a learner or a student. So I'm going to follow you, Jesus, because I want to learn more about you. I want to be close to you. I want to be close to you because you are going to teach me things, but I can't do that unless I continue to follow after you. And so maybe this idea of somebody was to say, well, what are you? And you go, well, I'm a Christian. But how about this? What if you were to tell them, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus? Oh, well, that seems a bit intense. I have to tell you this. You're not a follower of Jesus unless you are a disciple of Jesus. Like You, you can't go, I'm following you, Jesus, but I'm not learning anything. If you're a Christian, then you should be a disciple because that's how that works. And in fact, the scripture shows us over and over again, the disciples followed him. The disciples gathered around him. And we're not just talking about the 12. So I just wanted you to think about that. Maybe describing yourself instead of just saying you're a Christian, I think it would maybe spur a little bit of conversation where you go, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I follow, I'm following after him. I'm learning from him. So verse 24 They get into the boat and it's great. Smooth sailing. No, verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Hmm. A great storm arose on this sea. The, um, The words right there, the two Greek words for great storm, mega seismos. Very large and wait, seismos, seismic. Yes. So whatever this was, whatever this storm was on the Sea of Galilee, on this lake was dramatic. How dramatic? Dramatic for even fishermen who that was their spot. They would normally go there. It was their normal nine to five, whatever their hours were job. And they were taken by this storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting thing because when I had gone, I went in 2000 and this, it was, it's smooth. There's times where the wind will blow and waves happen pretty quickly. It's the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's 600 feet below sea level. And it's, it, the topography is interesting because from the west, there's these, um, the way the, the, the hills are and the mountain, not mountains, the hills are, there's like these channels that air can rush in from the west and kind of gets funneled in and starts picking up speed until it hits the lake. And then it begins to hit the water and drive these wind, these waves. And the lake is not very deep. I think at its deepest, it's like 150 feet. It's not very deep. Which means the effect of the wind, it's even a greater effect on this shallow, relatively shallow body of water. So all of a sudden, sunny day, everything's going great. And then within a matter of an hour, things could change dramatically. So as Jesus is instructing them to go over to the other side, this mega seismos comes up on the lake. And now water is being taken on in this boat. And I was in, I was on that lake and like, if you go there, there's these tour boats and they're these huge tour boats. And you know, you can fit like, I think we had 60 people in our group or something like that. Or yeah, 60 people. And I think 30 or so fit in each boat. And so we had two boats. And it was pretty cool. We went out on the lake and then the, the boats would like, you know, uh, um, be lashed to each other right next to each other. And then a Bible study was done in the, in the, on the lake. And usually it's a study like this, which is always encouraging, right? And there you are in the lake. And then there's a great storm, mega seismos came up. But it's just awesome to, to hear the word of God being taught. And then you look around and you go, it was here that this happened. 
But when we were out there, the water was relatively calm, but we did see a few days where the wind came up and you can see how waves could happen. And we, I didn't witness myself a large storm, but this was a huge storm. Now, some would say there's, there's a lot of discussion amongst Christians, right? The discussion of like, wait, was this storm demonically powered? In other words, was it Satan trying to kill Jesus? Was he trying to kill Jesus and his disciples and try to take him out early? I don't know. I'm not going to build him some huge theology on that, but that's a very interesting thought. I don't know. Um, maybe it's just a matter of the natural phenomenon of the wind and how it all worked out and it going through those channels and it ended up whipping up whatever it was. We just need to know this. It really was a storm and it was strong enough. And the other thing was that Jesus was sleeping. Why was Jesus sleeping? Like this is, this is a storm. This is a big deal. There's a lot of stuff going on and Jesus is asleep. And now when it's like, well, why was Jesus sleeping? Well, there's a very, very Christian answer, right? Here's a Christian answer. Because he was at peace and he knew everything that was going on and he understood that he was bigger than all of it. He wasn't worried. And that's a very Christian answer. And I believe that's a correct answer. But how about we look at a very practical one first? He was tired, right? Sometimes we could jump to this like spiritual answer and it's like, well, hold on. What, what has been happening here in Matthew? Long days, long nights, ministering to people. When you minister to people, there's a level of you're exerting yourself. Even if you're not physically exerting yourself, you're taking on, you're listening to the, the trials, the burdens, the challenges of people. And you will get crushed by the burdens of other people if you yourself, as someone who's praying for or helping others, if you don't give it to your Heavenly Father quickly. And so you... If you've, if you've been avoiding helping people or being, avoiding people that have these, like, they got big issues. Well, you're not actually called to carry their issues. You're called to listen and you're called to give them to the Lord. But people just need an ear to hear. In counseling, the primary thing that I do, the primary thing that I do is just listen. It's the primary thing. You know how many people, they just have no one to talk to about things of the Lord? They have nobody to talk, you know, they can go to work or they can go someplace else and, you know, they can talk about the game, they can talk about the weather, they can talk about all this other stuff. But the thing that's, that's just eating them up inside and it's just, they're getting way down in burden or all those things that they can't discuss with someone who's not a believer because they don't understand. They don't, they're not on the same frame of reference. Do you realize how important it is for you as a Christian to be available for others to be able to talk to? to be able to share their burdens with, not so that you'll carry it and go, I got plenty of burdens myself. I don't need anybody else's. Nobody's asking you to carry them or yours. In fact, Jesus says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Cast them, throw them at me. I'll take them. So you and I should be available for people. You and I should say, I I clearly see somebody has a need here and I'm going to go reach out to them. I want to encourage you to not do this. I want to encourage you to not Look at somebody in need and you realize, wow, they really need some help right now. I'm going to definitely call the pastor and see if he can get over here right now. No. Why do you think you notice it? I'm not qualified. Are you a Christian? Then you are. Do you know Jesus? Then you are. Because again, you're not, you're not the one with the answers. You're just the referral service. You're going to refer their issues to Jesus. You're going to pray for them. Otherwise, what happens is 
you will feel like, well, I can't do this. I can't talk to them. Well, that's, that's an issue. I don't have, I have no experience in this field or this area. Listen, I've never done drugs, but I've talked to lots of people who have done drugs and I've prayed with them. Imagine if I was like, oh, listen, because sometimes folks will come in and they'll just be like, you know, hey, do you do marriage counseling? Yes, I do marriage counseling. Well, do you do like crisis marriage counseling? I'm like, here we go. We're going to get hyper specific about stuff. And it's like, well, do you do? And I'm just like, listen, what we do is we look at the word and we see what God says and we counsel off of that. And I got that covers a lot of areas. Now, if you can find somebody very specific that, you know, has also a life experience with what you you're going through, I think that's great. However, we live in Humboldt County. There's not a ton of people in this county compared to other large areas. And I think sometimes people come here thinking, I got to get this hyper specialized. Do you know a Christian? Go talk to them and pray together. Because you're not going to solve it. They're not going to solve it. It's God. You just need someone else that can share it. And when they think about you, they're not going to carry your burden. They're going to pray for you. You should do that and you should be that person. And as I look at this passage right here and I look at this idea of (laughs) Jesus here is sleeping and it's like, why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he does care? He's just tired. He's tired from lots of exertion of loving people. And he is a human being. And as he's doing all of that, he's going to get tired. So there he is. And the storm's coming up. And Jim, are you saying that he isn't at peace because he is the king and he knows? No, no, of course he is. I'm just saying, let's not forget that he was also tired. And so the disciples, however, as they're coming to him, they're coming to him, I'm sure, in lots of different ways. And I'm sure they didn't just say these few words. I'm sure there was a lot of dialogue. Should we talk to him? Should we? No, we're fine. We got this. That's what I think. I think what happened before between verse 24 and verse 25 was a storm came up. Jesus is asleep. And then these are fishermen. What are fishermen going to do? Oh, there's a storm. First thing we're going to do is talk to Jesus. No, I'm a fisherman. I'm going to take care. This is what I do. This is my wheelhouse. This is how, this is how I get paid. I'm doing this. And I'm sure they tried really, really hard again and again and again, because it got to this point. It said that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Okay. There's a lot of steps that get between everything's fine. And there's water now in the boat. And you know that those guys were like trying you know, Peter was like, what are you doing? Pick that up. Come over here. Give me that line. No, dude, no. You know, just trying to make it all happen. Like trying to, the, in their best human efforts with all of their worldly experience in that field, fishing, they still couldn't do it. Do you ever have those kind of days where you're like, I should be good at this. And this is not a highlight real day for me. This is one that gets put on the cutting room floor. Like this one, I... I should be really good at this. This is my field of expertise. Well, just look at this story and be reassured that even in your field of expertise, storms will come and you will be inadequate to solve it. And God will allow you to keep trying. But at some point, he wants you to get to the point. What is that? That you realize Jesus is with you. And you refer to the person who is the most qualified If you've been working in a certain field or you have a certain level of experience for decades and decades and decades and decades, you still have much less experience than Jesus. How about we just go to the expert? How about we just ask him? I don't want to trouble him because the issue is too small. Jesus never turns away anybody that comes to him. 
So in your life, you know, is there something where you're like, this is something that I've dealt with in the past. And so I'm going to power through this. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to, I'm telling you this, Jesus will let you, but how about you just ask him? And really, why wouldn't you ask the most qualified person first? It would save you a lot of effort, trouble, pain, sorrow. We live in a world where it's like, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and make it happen and do all this stuff. Well, I got to tell you, that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is I'm nothing without Jesus. He's my savior. He's my master. He's my king. And so these great experts at the sea, from worldly perspective, they're failing. They're getting an F. (laughs) And so they go to Jesus and they say these things to him. Verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. All right. I'm dying here, Lord. I've had that kind of a prayer request where it's like, Lord, I'm dying. I'm dying right now. This is like the train wreck is half a second away is how it feels like in my life. But it's all going in slow motion and it's all going to be, oh, wait, I haven't actually talked to God yet. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help my family. Jesus, help my parents or my children or my neighbor or Jesus, please help. I'm trying to do this myself. Maybe that's why it's not working. And so we look at this and we go, this is great. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And then the very next verse, let's just read his his uh, response. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, if, and if you're just kind of reading it really quick and you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to get through these five verses here in, you know, 20 seconds. Read it. And it's just like, man, Jesus seems really harsh there. Like, why are they afraid? They're afraid because there's a storm. That's why they're afraid, Jesus. Why? Why? I mean, did you wake up grumpy? I don't understand. Why would you say that to them that way? They just came to you and they're just like, we're perishing. We're dying here. Remember, when Jesus answers somebody, he answers because he knows the heart. And there was something wrong with their heart. Wait, how is it possible your heart can be wrong when you're in a storm? Oh, it's possible. Oh, it's possible. Because what they're saying is, save us, Lord, master over everything, everything. We are dying. Wait, you're saying that I'm the master of everything and in my presence you're dying? Like your life is over. I'm here with you and your life is over? Now, I like this. You look at um, parallel Bible passages here. Well, let's look at Mark's account. Mark's account will be on the screen here. It's Mark chapter four, verse 38. And this gives you a little bit more insight in what they were saying, right? So Mark chapter four, verse 38. And he was in the stern, that's Jesus, asleep on a cushion. So it gives us a little bit more detail. He had a cushion, right? Because how is he sleeping in this boat? I mean, he must have been really tired. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. Oh, do you see a different tone there? And so it's like, wait, teacher, do you not care? And then we get to Matthew's account and it says, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Well, which one is it? Oh, I think it was both. In other words, I don't think they just said one sentence in the whole thing. I think as they're talking to Jesus, different people are saying different things and like, teacher, Lord, teach. And remember, we talked about it over the weeks. Teacher is a lower status than Lord, if you will, because what you need When there's a storm is you don't need a teacher. You need a Lord. When the waves are coming, you don't need a teacher that's like, well, meteorologically speaking, what's happening here? This is called a mega seismos, guys. (laughs) Sit down. Lesson. School's in session. That you don't need a teacher in a storm. Primarily what you need is somebody who's bigger than the storm. You need a Lord. 
You need somebody bigger than your problem. And so I believe they started out with teacher and then do, do you not care? Man, they're questioning whether Jesus cares about them. Now, I can go on this long rant about how horrible that is until I realize that I've done that. How about you? Have you ever questioned the goodness of God in your life? Have you had a storm in your life that's so great that you started to go, God, why is this happening? And then you allow your mind to wander into a dark downhill path that gets you asking this question. I wonder if you even care about me, Lord. And if you find yourself there, I just have to say, that's not a good place to be. I've been there before. And it's not a good place to be. And you can be assured that you're not the only one either because these disciples found themselves there. Teacher, do you not even care that we're dying? No, that's right. Jesus doesn't care. That's right. He uh, left heaven. Mm -hmm. He left heaven, came here to earth because he doesn't care. He put on flesh. He suffered loss. He dealt with being ridiculed, not being believed by his own uh, siblings, being uh, mocked, Joseph, his dad, dying. Jesus dealt with a lot of stuff here on this earth because, what was it again? What was we were saying? Because he, he doesn't care. See, if we actually stop for a moment and said, what has Jesus done? He's done a lot and all of it shows that he cares. Even if we just, even if we were just to look earlier in this passage of scripture here, these guys are saying, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Let's see, Jesus doesn't care. He cared for a leper so much that he touched him. He cared for a Roman centurion's servant so much that he healed him. He cared for a bunch of people and went late into the night. Let's see, this is all because he doesn't care? So then maybe we, we, we make a sharper accusation against God and we say, well, maybe you just don't care about me. At this point, I have to say, because I say this to myself, go ahead, Jim, just pull out your violin and just start playing, because man, are you just, oh, it's just, just, listen, there's times that we do have to tell ourselves to stop it. You have to tell yourself, because you find yourself going down the whiny path of, uh, of sorrow that is not based in fact. Does Jesus love you? Has he proven that he loves you? Has he historically done things that show that he loves you? Before you and I were born, he chose to die on a cross. Hmm, is that a sign of love or is that a sign that he does? It's a sign that he loves me. Which means then that in my day-to-day -day challenge, including whatever storm is today, he loves me. Which means I may not understand why, but I should not question that he loves me and cares about me. And that he has a plan he's accomplishing even through this storm. Remember, how did these, these disciples end up in this storm? By following Jesus. Wait, hold on. Jesus led them into the storm. Yes, he did. See, if you follow after Jesus, you follow him wherever he goes. And I'm telling you, this is the truth. There's times where he will lead you into a storm. Why? Because he wants you to see something about yourself that he already knows. Come on, there's those times where we just like, you know, I'm doing pretty good with the Lord. I think I'm, I think I'm, you know, and then all of a sudden we go from, I think I'm doing pretty good with the Lord with, man, I am doing really good with the Lord. Yeah, we're doing good. A few weeks ago, I said, be careful. You start patting yourself on the back, you're going to throw your back out, right? I'm such a, oh, that's kind of how it works. Because God, he's, he doesn't want us to get prideful over something that we had nothing to do with. <laughs> right? 
And so God in the flesh, the King, Jesus, led these disciples into a storm. Why? Because I'm sure they were just like, wow, well, we get to hang out with Jesus and, you know, we're pretty important and we're in the boat with him and all these other things. And you know what? We're, you know, Jesus is great, but we're also kind of good too, right? Well, Jesus is like, I got to get them. I've got to get them to understand where, who I am, that I am Lord over everything. I am Lord over sickness. I'm Lord over disease. I'm Lord over demon possession. I, I am bigger than those things. And now what he's showing, he goes, I'm Lord over nature. I control nature. It obeys me. If I speak to it, it obeys me. Which then for us, we go, hmm, is the problem in my life smaller than a storm on a sea? And if my God can calm nature, can't he calm the issue in my life? Yes, he can. But I, I want you and I to both know this. The biggest issue is not the storm. The biggest issue is our heart. The reason why Jesus sent him in the storm, it wasn't so he could prove that he could, you know, uh, make a storm go away. It was to show these guys that they had issues in their own heart. They had some trust issues. They had issues about whether God was big enough, whether God would come through for them. And if you ask them on a sunny day on the shore, hey, do you trust God? Totally trust him. Totally trust him. He's my Lord. Hey, man, let me tell you, that's an easy talk when life's going well. And you know what? For you to truly find out whether Jesus is Lord, you know how you're going to find that out? You're going to find that out in a storm. Here at the church, it's interesting. You know, there's when a person, you know, like, hey, I want to serve or I want to, you know, do stuff. That's great. You know, we have kids ministry applications and worship stuff. And, you know, there's lots of ways to serve. That's great. But when somebody's like, well, I want to serve in a position where I'm leading other people or I'm really like in a position where, first of all, if somebody's really asking for that, that's already a red flag. Well, no, that's a yellow flag going towards red. But... The thing that we're looking for is we're looking to see how they live their life, okay? And we're looking to see how they live their life on the sunny days, sure, but that anybody can do that. We're actually looking to see how a person will live their life when there's a storm in their life, because that's when you really find out who a person is. You want to know who you really are? Ask God, and he will bring a storm into your life. Well, then I'm never going to ask God. Why? You don't want to know who you really are? Are you afraid of a storm? You shouldn't be afraid of a storm because Jesus is calling out these disciples on this. They shouldn't be afraid of the storm. Why, Jim? The storm is big. Jesus is infinitely bigger. See, they forgot about Jesus. Yes, if you only look at your storm, of course it's huge. It's a big deal. But there's something bigger than any storm you or I will go through. Infinitely bigger. Jesus. And if we look to him, then our storm, does it change size? No, but it's just in perspective to Jesus. It's nothing compared to him. Why am I afraid about this thing? But Jim, it's cancer. Is Jesus bigger than cancer? It's dementia. Is Jesus bigger than that? It's a divorce. Is Jesus bigger than that? It's a death of my child. Is Jesus bigger than that? Wait, you, okay, hold on. You just said a lot of pretty heavy things. I did. And I also said, is Jesus bigger than that? And you have to answer that question. You have to answer that. Because if you're like, well, he's big enough for like the day-to-day stuff. But no, I don't want to. I mean, if some of those other like pretty tragic things happen, I don't want to think about that. I get it. I don't want to dwell on that either. But we still have to ask the question, is Jesus bigger than that? And these disciples were being asked this question. How? Because they were being taught. How? In a storm. You want to know where you really stand, disciples? You want to know where you really stand with me? Whether you really trust me? Here's a storm. And is Jesus going to take care of the storm? Yes, he's going to take care of the storm. But not until he does something more important first. Verse 26. 
And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Maybe that's a comparison to a person recently that we read about who had great faith. Do you remember who that was? The centurion. Maybe he's comparing the centurion's faith, a great faith with this little faith of people who are his disciples, <laughs> right? And he's just going, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then, then only after he addressed the real issue, the real issue was their hearts. After he addresses the real issue, he takes care of the smaller issue. What's the smaller issue? The storm. The storm isn't the deal. The storm is never the deal. The storm is used to reveal what the actual issue is. Here it is. Then he rose, rebuked the sea, the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And I just love it. The order, the order that God uses there. I'm first going to deal with the biggest issue. I'm going to deal with your heart. Oh, and that storm in your life? We'll take care of that too, but not first. We got, there's something more important that needs to be dealt with. The prophet Isaiah even said this. How important it is to focus on, on who God is. Isaiah 26, 3, when you're in a storm, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want that peace of God in your life, then your mind has to be on God. What does that mean? That means you actively think about the goodness of God. You think about, like when that thought comes in my, into your head of, my head, your head of, oh, maybe does God love me? You know what you have to do? Engage your mind and go, hold on. Let's go through whether God loves me or not. And as you keep your mind on the goodness of God and all that he's done, he will keep you in perfect peace. Wait, what about the storm? Here's the amazing thing. Whether there's a storm or not, that's not the issue anymore. That's the beautiful change. The issue is not whether your life has storms or not. The issue is, do I trust Jesus or not? Then it doesn't matter if you're currently in a storm or not. I mean, yes, there's some issues that happen. There's some things that happen, inconveniences, all that stuff. But that's not really the biggest problem. For a non-believer, for a non-Christian, you know what the big deal is? The storm. The storm. The car broke. Oh, the car. I can't believe that. Oh, my boss, like they're laying off people and I don't know if I'm going to have my job. Oh no, I'm, I failed that midterm and that's such a huge portion of my grade. And I, those, I just have to tell you, those things are not actually the issue. You know what the issue is? If you're going, oh no, the issue then is your lack of trust that God isn't bigger than that thing that you just brought up. So God's not big. Wait, you're a Christian and you don't believe God's bigger than your broken car? Well, you're a Christian and you don't believe that God's bigger than the potential of you being laid off? Oh no, careful. You may have to actually work it with your own strength and do it like those fishermen did on the boat in the storm, which didn't work. See, God will allow storms in your life because he wants you to trust him. Don't make the storm what it's all about. It's not all about the storm. It's never been all about the storm. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the king that's with you in the storm. That's what it's all about. So if you don't focus on Jesus, there's something that kicks in fear and fear is there's a healthy fear. I have a healthy fear. Here's my healthy fear. My healthy fear is uh, I don't have a fear of heights. I have a fear of hitting the ground. That's my fear, right? That healthy fear guides some of my decisions in life. And, and so there's some healthy things where you're like, well, you know, I don't that, that's fine. That's, those are healthy fears, right? We all have healthy fears. I'm talking about the ones that are not healthy. The ones that we, we are focusing now on the storm and we're not focusing on our savior. We're not focusing on our king. Here's the thing about fear. Fear is like a magnifying glass. It will, it will magnify the storm. 
So the storm actually hasn't changed size. It's still the same thing, but then we start to get fear and we start to look at it and we're like, this thing is huge. No, you're holding up that lens of fear. So of course it looks bigger, but if it was to come down, you would just go, it's the same size it's always been. So, but what fear can do is it can magnify, at least from our perspective, magnify the storm. Here's the other thing I've noticed with fear. It can paralyze you. So you're afraid. So now here's what you do. Nothing, nothing. You need to make a decision, but now you're afraid you're going to make the wrong decision. So you know what you do? You do nothing. And now you're dead in the water. Now there's no forward progress in your life because you're stopped. And why are you stopped? Because you're afraid. Jesus said, why are you afraid? What's the issue? Oh, ye of little faith. Why don't you trust me? You're afraid because you don't trust me. Oh no, I totally trust you. Your actions don't show that you trust me. And so you're going to have some big storms in your life like we all will. We'll all have storms in our life, but we should realize that Jesus is infinitely bigger than your storm. He's not like one and a half times bigger. He's infinitely bigger than your storm. He can handle it. I want to tell you a couple things about fear. Uh, Fear can magnify your storms, at least from your perspective. The storm doesn't get any bigger. The storm is still the storm. It doesn't suddenly like become bigger. Oh, you know, this issue has come into my life or, you know, my, my kids are walking away from the Lord or something's happening here. If you have fear in your life, it's not like your kids are walking away from the Lord that much faster, but it's going to feel that way to you. Why? Because fear is like a magnifying glass to storms. When fear starts to grip you, it's like a magnifying glass. And now all you do is look at all the storms with this magnifying glass and everything is bigger now, even though in reality, it's the same size, but boy, does it look bigger. And now it starts to feed on itself and the fear starts to do something. It paralyzes you. So now I don't know what I should do. What decision should I make? Should I do this or should I do that? I'm afraid you're afraid. And so you won't make any decision. And now you're a boat that's dead in the water. You're afraid to move. You're paralyzed. Fear has now paralyzed you. Something else with fear, and if you take fear and you you get it to its core essence, the thing with fear is it involves loss. Because if you go down to it, it's like, you know, I'm afraid. What are you? I'm afraid to go to the doctor. Why are you afraid to go to the doctor? Well, because of what they may say. Well, what might they say? Well, what if they say, you know, that I have cancer? Okay, what are you afraid of about having cancer? Which may seem like an obvious question, right? But you've you got to follow the path, right? What are you afraid about finding out that you have cancer? Christian, what are you afraid about? I'm afraid that I'm going to die. Wait, what? You're a Christian. You're afraid that you're going to see Jesus. Okay, maybe I'm not afraid of seeing Jesus. Maybe I'm afraid of the process between now and seeing Jesus and the pain and the struggle. Got it. The storm between here and there. Right. Uh, are you doing it by yourself or is there somebody with you during that path? If that happens. Oh, that's right. Jesus. Is, yeah, he's with you. So I come back to the first question. What are you afraid of? That's what Jesus is calling out his disciples on. Why are you afraid? If I'm God and I'm Lord over everything and I'm with you, why are you afraid? I may go through hard times. I'll be there with you. I mean, I have the strength to do it. You won't have the strength to do it. And I will carry you. Well, I may die. And then you will see me face to face. Christian, what are you afraid of? I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose my life. I may lose my spouse, my kids, my job, my house, my health, my position. 
I'm gripped by fear. I, I'm afraid. Okay, there's a solution for fear. There is a solution for fear. The solution for fear is actually listed in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's a displacement. One comes in and the other has to leave. There is no fear in love. Ah, there's a little bit of fear in love. Nope, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out. Love shows up. The love of the Lord shows up and fear gets ejected. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, good. I just do that once. I go, God, I just need your love and I'm done. I'll never be fearful in my life. No, we get amnesia. We forget Jesus is in the boat all the time. So we have to remember all the time. We have to have our mind stayed on him and he will keep you in perfect peace. So fear involves this. It's this thought of loss. I'm afraid I'm going to lose. So you know what a non-Christian has to do then? They have to reinforce their life with a bunch of things and then have enough padding so hopefully it doesn't all fall away and then they experience loss. I don't want to experience loss. I don't want to experience loss. So I'm going to grip onto everything super tight because I don't want to lose anything. Well, what about love? Does, does love is, love is great then because there's no loss when it comes to love. This is what I have to tell you. Love involves loss too. Okay, pastor, now you're totally confusing me because you're saying fear involves loss and love involves loss. Why, what does it matter? What's the difference between the two? Here's the difference between fear and love as far as loss goes. Fear resists loss. Love chooses loss for the benefit of others. We're all going to experience loss. In the same way that everybody in life experienced storms, Christians and non-Christians, everybody's going to experience loss in this life. Every one of us will. The question is, are you going to resist it or are you going to choose it? Are you going to willingly go, I, Jesus, for you, give you my life. My literal life, whatever, whatever you want. My time, my gifts, my talents, the things that you've given to me that I say are mine, they're really all yours anyway, I give them back to you. <clears throat> that person that I see that's in need, Oh, if I go and talk to them, that's going to be a loss for me because it's going to be a loss of my time. It's going to be a loss of my, what I want to do. Me, my, I, me, my. Yeah, love involves loss. It always has. And so if you don't choose love, the only other option is fear. I've got to just worry about number one. I've got to worry about me. Jesus gives you the other option. Let your life go. Trust me with it. Use your life as a blessing for other people. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 12 and 13. He said, this is my commandment. Jesus' own words. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love. Remember, love displaces fear. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus didn't just say that. A few chapters later in John, Jesus did it. Jesus chose loss. Do you realize your Savior chose loss over and over and over again? When he came and put on flesh, he left heaven. He came to this imperfect world, and so he experienced loss. He lost, when he was on the cross for, for three hours, there was darkness over the whole land, and in that darkness, the relationship between him and the Father, for the first time in all of eternity, wasn't there. He experienced loss. Why did Jesus go through all of this loss? Why did he go through the nails, the, the, the crown, the shame, the humiliation? Why did he go through all of that? Here's why. Love. Jesus said, I love them 
so I will experience loss. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross with joy. How does somebody go through something horrible with joy? Because of love. Love motivates you to do things and love pushes fear away. I've read stories of sacrifice as I was preparing for this and late into last night or early into this morning, I can't actually, I I can't remember right now, I came across a few stories and I was just in tears of the power of love and how love drives out fear where a person normally would just go, I'm freaked out by that. Story about a mom who sees a mountain lion that has her child's head in its mouth rushes out, grabs the mountain lion by the mouth and rips open the mountain lion's mouth, gets her child out who lives and did fine afterwards. Would she normally just been like, there's a mountain lion. It's giving me an attitude. I'm going to take care of it. No, probably be like, I'm not going that way. That's going to, that's going to involve pain for me. And I, I don't think I'm going to come out on the winning end of that battle. But what causes a mother to suddenly take all of her own self-preservation and go out the window. Why? Love for her child. Jesus, because of the love he had for you, said, I give my life. I give it all for them. I want to tell you a story and, and we'll put a picture up in a moment. Not yet. But um, I want to tell you a story of a 36-year-old woman. Her name is Elena Furlan. She uh, is from Italy and she found out she had this cancerous tumor in her uterus. She also found out that she was pregnant. And so she had the option here to go through chemotherapy. But to go through chemotherapy for Elena would, re, would result in a high probability that her child would, her unborn child would die. And so Elena, a decision made in their family, and this is a difficult decision. This is one that, whew, does it involve loss? You guys know it. It's going to involve loss. But is loss going to be out of fear or is loss going to be out of love? I want to show you a picture here, and this is Elena um, having gone through the pregnancy and beautiful baby girl, Maria, who was cancer-free, born cancer-free. Her mom chose not to go through chemo and uh, with no guarantee that Maria wouldn't have cancer or any of those other issues, and so this beautiful baby girl was born. And she knew that she probably wasn't going to live because now since he didn't undergo chemo, the cancer had spread in her body. And in the first year of her daughter's life, it was spreading. And so it comes down to this idea of like, this child has now been born and I'm going to experience loss of myself. I mean, she wasn't, Elena wasn't sure she was going to see Maria's first birthday. And so she wrote um, her girl this. And it says, you and I together, we fought like lions and we won. We have won everything. My love, since you're here, it's like I have started living for the first time. I sometimes think how sad it would have been if you had never come. Because before, I never understood what living really meant. Loving someone above all else. I love you, my daughter. I love your smile. I love to sing funny songs without being embarrassed. I love to kiss you, kiss you forever. I love all your little steps and victories. I love you infinitely. Are you gripping on with fear? Like, is that your life? Is that what you're doing? You're so afraid that you'll lose stuff that you're losing. I'm telling you, Jesus gives you another way. For that mom, uh, she had a joy in her heart by choosing loss so that someone else could have a chance. 
Are you trying to preserve your life? Because if you do, you're wasting your life. You, you weren't created to watch out for you. You were created to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and he will take care of you. He will take care of your situations and he loves you. The last verse. And the men marveled, saying, after this, you know, Jesus has spoken to them and he's spoken to the, he just spoke to the storm. He didn't even yell at the storm. He just spoke to it. Calm down. Boom, gone. Why? Because he's the king. The storm has to obey him. Verse 27, the men marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this, Jesus? What what kind of man is this that I should trust him with my whole life? I wonder who he is. Colossians tells us who who this guy is. Colossians 1, uh, 15, 16, and 17 say this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. If you're ever wondering, I wonder what God is like. Jesus, look at him. Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. He existed before anything was created, including the sea, the storm, the boat. Jesus was there and is supreme over all creation. It goes on and it says in verse 16, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. So even in the spiritual world, Jesus has created all these things that we can't even perceive. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, that's repeated twice, and he holds all creation together. If he holds all creation together, every subatomic particle, I think he can hold my life and your life together. You and I have to come to some conclusion. Either we believe it or we don't. There is no middle ground. There is no, Jesus kind of has it. No, he's either Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all. You must decide in your life and your life needs to reflect what you say you believe. So what about the storm in your life? What about the thing that you're going through and the challenge that you're going through in your life? How's your boat doing? Are you taking on water? Have you been working the sails and trying to get everything and trying to bail water out of your boat? You're trying really hard and you realize it's not working. You don't have the strength to do it. Jesus allows storms in our life so that we can see how much we need him. I don't know the storms that you're going through in your life. And I'm, I'm not here to minimize your storm. That, I, I want to make that very clear this morning. I'm not here to minimize your storm. I'm here to magnify who Jesus is. Your storm is your storm. I'm not here to take that away from you or go, oh, that's not really a thing or you're not really going through that or get over that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is look at Jesus who is infinitely bigger than whatever you're going through. That's where your peace will come from. And he will carry you through whatever storm you have in life. I'll leave you on a quote. Worship team's going to come on up. I'll leave you on this quote here. This is a quote from Spurgeon. And I saw it a few weeks ago and it didn't fit in the message that I was in, but I was like, I'm saving this one for for this passage of scripture. And this is what uh, Spurgeon wrote. Blew me away when I read it. It says, "I, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I was like, I don't know if I'm always there. There's times where I, you know, I curse the wave that's slamming me right now. I, I, I yell at the wave. Why? That's hitting me. 
But Spurgeon wrote, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. If I've gotten so far away from Jesus that it takes a storm for me to get me back where I should be, then praise the Lord that he brought the storm to bring me back to him. Shall we pray, church? Father, I pray for all of us. You know very well the storms we have gone through and will go through, and for some right now that we are going through. I pray for the one that is wondering about their kids and the the thought of their kids' future and the direction they're headed causes them to fear. Pray, Lord, comfort for that parent. Pray for the spouse who's concerned about their marriage. And if they think about it, just the circumstances, just the storm, they fear and despair takes over. Lord, I pray that your presence would fill their heart and that they would realize that you're with them in it. Whether it's a health issue or something else, jobs, finances, whatever the storm is, we just want to say that, Jesus, we trust you. You have proven yourself over and over and over again, but most of all, you proved yourself when you went to the cross and you died. You suffered loss. You suffered loss. You gave your life so that we might have life. And you did it because you loved us. The cross for you was smaller than your love for us. So you went with joy to the cross. You went with joy to a place where you experienced suffering because you knew that it would open up a door of life and love for so many people. As those people, Jesus, we just want to say thank you for choosing to love us. Thank you for experiencing loss on our behalf. Help us to be people who are like little Jesuses, disciples of you, and we're not afraid of experiencing loss so that we can show love to other people. Let our light shine for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.